Well, good morning. It's great to be together to worship God on this Sunday morning. Uh, Today, we're going to be taking a look at a conversation between David and his eldest brother, Eliab. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago about Old Testament biblical narrative, there are aspects to the biblical narrative that we're not always that comfortable with as evangelical Christians, especially around this idea of ambiguity. Ambiguity simply means that things are not always absolutely clear. And for us in the church, we love clarity. We've been raised on Paul's epistles in the New Testament. And one thing that Paul is very careful to do is to be clear. He wants to teach the truth. He wants to be precise. And so we're raised to look for clarity and doctrinal uh, certainty in the scriptures. But that's just not how the Old Testament was written. And so as we're going to get into this morning's message, things are not always going to be absolutely clear. But that doesn't mean that there aren't hints and clues that will help us to interpret what is going on. At the end of the day, in order to really get into the, the, the center, the core of what's happening in Old Testament narrative, the best rule of thumb is to simply read it, enjoy reading it, have fun with it, and allow the theology to take care of itself. Uh, Before we read uh, this morning's text, I do want to just mention that a lot of what I am going to be exploring today has come to me through one of my primary influences in understanding biblical narrative, my professor, Dr. Keith Bodner. And in particular, he wrote an article called Eliab and the Deuteronomist, which is of particular influence for this morning's message. Let's get into the text. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17? We're going to start at verse 19 and go all the way through to verse 30. 1 Samuel 17, verses 19 to 30. This is the Word of God. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David Heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. The word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this interaction between David and Eliab, I ask that you would help us to understand through all of the ambiguity that you would help us to rightly interpret this passage. And more than that, that you would help us to see how it informs our understanding, not just of David, but also of you and of ourselves and of the gospel. Please speak through me, in spite of me. For who am I? But by your grace, Lord, I pray that you would build up this church and you would glorify yourself. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 17 is a very famous chapter in the Bible. Uh, it often goes by the name David and Goliath. It's a cultural staple. You don't even have to be a part of the church or have been raised in a church to know about David and Goliath. Uh, authors like Malcolm Gladwell have written articles and chapters and books about this chapter. And for all of its fanfare and all of its popularity, however, how many people know anything about Eliab ben Jesse? Tucked into this famous chapter is an obscure interaction between David and his eldest brother. We see it there in 1 Samuel 17, verses 28 and 29. Let's just take another quick look at it. Context is clear. David has come down. He's delivering his uh, supplies from his father to his brothers on the front line and to the commanders of his brothers. And as he's coming down, he sees Goliath come forward and challenge Israel to send out a man. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, David is the eighth of eight sons. His father, Jesse, is old. We're told in the text that he is close to death. So it's, it's not a matter of decades, but at most years before Jesse dies and the inheritance will be handed out. And Je uh, David being the eighth of eight stands to gain very little. And so when David hears that there is a reward from the king for the man who kills this Philistine, he is intrigued. 
And so he goes around and he's soliciting uh, the, the men in the area to say, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? What will be done? What will be done? And all these groups of men tell him the reward over and over again. He is securing for himself witnesses because he has every intention of stepping out onto that battlefield to kill that Philistine and collect his reward. This is the context of Eliab's interaction with him. Eliab is watching his brother. He is hearing his brother. And it's in this context that Eliab speaks. Take a look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And this is what he said. Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption. I know the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. David responds to him and says, Why? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? So the question for us this morning is, what are we to make of this little fraternal squabble? Is this the jealous brooding of an older brother that was passed over for the future kingship? Maybe. But maybe there's just something a little bit more happening here. In order to answer these questions, we must note several things. The first thing is this, that Eliab only has two appearances in the Bible. He has this appearance here in chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. But he's been mentioned once previously in the chapter before, in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, we might surmise that the writer does not include Eliab to tell us something about Eliab. In fact, reason number two, or item number two that we must consider is that Eliab's only two appearances in the Bible are in the two chapters that introduce David. And we've gone over this again in previous weeks. That chapter 16 introduces David on the vertical plane. That is, David's relationship with God and God's relationship with David. And chapter 17 is the second introduction of David, which introduces David on the horizontal plane. That is, David as a man among men. And, and you'll notice in chapter 17 that God's not even mentioned. He doesn't feature in this chapter except on the lips of David. Therefore, we might expect, since these two chapters in which Eliab makes an appearance in each, one, one short cameo in each chapter, that Eliab's contribution to the narrative is to help us to better understand something about David. And this brings us to our third uh, item that we must note is this. The Bible is entirely silent regarding Eliab's ambition or lack thereof with regard to kingship. In fact, Eliab is described very much the w- same way that Saul is described as a man who is big and impressive looking. And we know about Saul that he didn't want to be king. He didn't seek out the kingship after he was uh, appointed to the kingship. It's not something that he particularly wanted, at least at first. Therefore, it might not be prudent to assume that Eliab is jealous of David's anointing. Maybe he didn't want it. It is likely, therefore, keeping these things in mind, that Eliab's function in 1 Samuel, is not to tell us anything about Eliab, but to help us to understand David. And we can come to this conclusion by 
learning something about the conventions of Hebrew narrative. Every character has a role to play. There are no throwaway characters. Every character that is included here, because this is a work uh, that I- is inspired by God, every character has a function to play. Now, main characters are considered to be round characters. Round characters are your main characters. They're, they're your complicated characters. They're the characters that change and develop over time in the narrative. So they started this way, but by the end, they're that way. Uh, round characters can contradict themselves. They can have a really good day and a really bad day. Complex characters can love the Lord uh, with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul, or at least endeavor to, and they can also fall into grievous sin. Those are round characters, uh, complex characters, main characters. Then there are flat characters. Flat characters are minor characters. They are one-dimensional. So Eliab as a man was not one-dimensional, but Eliab as a man in the Bible, a character in the Bible, is one-dimensional. He serves a one-dimensional function because he's a flat character. Now, flat characters do one of two things, or two things. They could do both. Flat characters are either introduced to progress the plot, so their only function in the narrative is to get us from this moment of conflict to this point of resolution. They move the plot one sequence. That happens. We see, for example, Saul's servant in chapter 16. I know of a guy who's really good on the lyre. You're being ravaged by an evil demon. I think this music therapist would help. He's a flat character. We don't know his name. We don't know what he does. But he connects Saul with David. Flat character. The second thing that flat characters do is they help us to understand round characters. So, uh, for example, if, if you have a flat character and, and really there's nothing to be learned about him or her, You want to ask yourself, is this person moving the plot forward? Or is what they are saying or doing helping us to understand a more key persona in the narrative? Eliab is a minor flat character. Therefore, we should expect that his function in the narrative is either to move the plot forward or to help us to understand a round character. You see where I'm going. So let's ask the first question. Does Eliab progress the plot? Not much. If we remove 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7, and if we remove 1 Samuel 17, verses 28 and 29, the narrative, the plot itself, would flow pretty much the same. David was chosen to be king, and David went from Bethlehem to the valley of Elah to kill Goliath. The plot doesn't change that much whether or not Eliab is there or not. Which means that his function in the Bible must be, the other thing that flat characters do, his function must be to help us to understand someone else. And I'm going to argue that Eliab is included here, inspired by God, as the historian was writing history, he included Eliab to help us to better understand David in these two introductory chapters about David. So let's take a look at uh, Eliab's first appearance in chapter 16. 
Now, uh, as I've already said, remember, chapter 16 is about David as he is vertically. That is, his relationship with God and God's relationship with him. So go back to 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7. In verses 1 to 5, Samuel has been told by God to get himself to Bethlehem to find Jesse, to uh, organize a sacrifice, invite Jesse's family to the sacrifice, and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. That's where we are. Verse 6. When they came, that is Jesse and his sons, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Eliab, in th- these verses, first of all, helps us to understand Samuel, who is a round character. I'm just going to summarize this quickly because our focus is on David. But I want to point out that Eliab is doing double function in chapter 16. He's helping us to understand a little bit more about Samuel. Samuel, it seems, has been preoccupied with the external qualifications of a king. Samuel is easily persuaded by the external packaging of a man. When Samuel looked on the appearance of Eliab, he thought to himself, this must be the king. But God uses Eliab to rebuke Samuel's presumption. Now this is really intriguing because Eliab is described, as I said, a lot like Saul. And I'm just going to crack open the door here for you. You can walk through it in your own leisure, but we're not going to go down this trail. But it begs the question. This is really the last appearance of Samuel in the narrative of which he's played such an important role. There's one other. uh, Well, he dies, and then he is conjured up by the witch at Endor. But this is his last really big scene. And it's at the very end that the narrator opens the door to us to ask the question, did Samuel make a mistake in anointing Saul because he thought that Saul looked like a king? Now you go back, and I've, I've read it carefully, and it says the Lord told Samuel to anoint Saul. Okay, so that's a different sermon, but it does open the door. Is Samuel presumptuous. Did he make a mistake in anointing Saul? Was he about to make the same mistake again? But God intervenes. That's a different sermon. That's a different character arc. Let's look at David. Eliab is also used here to show us something about David. Now what do we often do with this verse? The Lord doesn't look at external appearances. The Lord looks on the heart. We do do a a very quick link, right? And all of a sudden, this is how we conclude. Oh, therefore, because God has chosen David, he must have a good heart, right? God didn't choose Eliab because he had this impressive exterior. God did choose David because he had a good heart. We've already talked about that a few weeks ago as well. And we show that may not be the case, Notice what the Lord says very specifically here. Do not look at his outer appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
directly in the narrative, this is about Eliab. But I cannot help but wonder, because the chapter itself is about David, if Eliab is being used here to give us, the readers, a warning about how we are to look at men and women in the Bible, David included. Because what we're going to see as we go through First and Second Samuel is David looks good. And if you're not used to reading Hebrew narrative or you don't know the conventions, you might not realize that what we get in most of First and Second Samuel are only glimpses of the external David. What's being recorded for us is what David does and what David says. Very, very infrequently do we ever get a glimpse at what's going on inside. So, might this be a warning to us in this first introductory chapter about David? Be very careful how you read and interpret the life of David. Do not be fooled by external appearances. Look at all men and women in the Bible the way the Lord looks at all men and women in the Bible and in the, in the world. Not by external things, but internally at the heart. This is buttressed or supported by verse 12. When David comes in in verse 12, we get a description of David. And you know what the narrator does not say? And David came in and he had a good heart. No. We've just been warned, don't look at the external, look at the internal, look at the heart. And then David comes in, and we're told only about his external appearance. He's ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. External. We find out later, and we'll get into this maybe next week or the week after, that he's also big. It runs in the family. Just as Eliab was big, so was David. We'll, we'll talk about that later. So, so here, it's, it's very subtle but what we are, all we can really absolutely glean from Eliab's function in chapter 16 is a divine warning to Samuel, which we ought to heed as well. Be very careful when judging a person, whether in life or in literature or in recorded history. Don't look at the outside. Look at the inside. It's fascinating to me that God's quote to Samuel about Eliab in chapter 16 ends with this. The Lord looks on the heart. The heart. That's really interesting because of Eliab's second appearance in chapter 17. So if you are to circle these verses in your Bible and draw a straight line over to chapter 17, verses 28 and 29, what you'll see is in chapter 16, verse 7, the thing that we're left with is look at the heart. Look at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Look at the heart. Do not be deceived by external presentation. Look at the heart. I'm just trying to make the point. Now draw a line straight over to chapter 17. It's fascinating how... Uh, the writer uses Eliab here to describe David. Take a look at those verses again. Chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. So, so context, 
David is going around soliciting uh, several witnesses to ask them, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And Eliab, his eldest brother who knows David, is watching this go down. He says, but David is going around collecting witnesses to get confirmation of the reward. That's the context of, of this little interaction. So El, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. In other words, he, he was watching and listening to David as, he, as David was collecting witnesses. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Why? To answer that question, you have to look in your Bible. Why? It's a trick question. The Bible doesn't say why. Ambiguity. Was he jealous? Or did he know his brother? And he was concerned for his brother. Which one? I, I, I don't know. But this is what he said to David. Why have you come down here? Notice he doesn't pause for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. This is how brothers talk to one another. David knew that Eliab knew. So he didn't answer. It's rhetorical. Why'd you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption. I know that you have an evil heart. Don't look at the outside. Look at the inside. Look at the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. That was Eliab's contribution in the vertical chapter that introduced David. In the horizontal chapter... Eliab's contribution is to accuse David of having a presumptuous and evil heart. What are we to make of that? Isn't David the man after God's own heart? Oh, Eliab, get over yourself. Might Eliab have been rightly discerning the state of David's heart? Might he have been showing sincere brotherly concern? Might the writer be using David's eldest brother to teach us about David? To show us how to read the life of David as it is written in the Bible? Don't be distracted by David's external presentation but try to discern what's going on on the inside. Look at his heart. Let me give you three reasons that Eliab might have rightly discerned that David had an evil heart. Number one, remember the function of Eliab in the narrative. The narrative. Is Eliab a round character or is Eliab a flat character? He's a flat character. What do flat characters do? They progress the plot or they help us to understand a round character. Is David a round character or a flat character? He's a round character. The whole second half of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel is all about David. He is one of the largest personas in the Bible aside from Jesus Christ himself. 
If you're going to understand the gospel, if you're going to understand biblical theology, if you're going to understand salvation history, you have to wrestle with David. You have to understand David. He's the center of the Old Testament. So might it be that while God is introducing David to us, he tucks Eliab, a flat character, in to help us to understand who David is. You see, in my reading, it does very little for, for this chapter and for this book and for theology at all if the answer is just that Eliab was a jealous older brother. Well, big deal. Now, if Eliab was a jealous older brother and he continually tried to undermine David throughout the, the, the narrative, that would be noteworthy. And we would trace it back here and we say he's been jealous from the beginning. But he disappears from the pages of the Bible. So what's the point of, of saying, well, and by the way, David had a jealous older brother. Unless we're going to do some Freudian uh, interpretation where we try to figure out why David failed as a father. And maybe it's because he was the eighth and he had a jealous older brother. But that's really digging. Rather, this is a flat character helping us to understand a round character. And just so we know, might a brother have a keen insight into the character of, of another brother? If you want to know something about David, if you could sort of resurrect whoever you wanted and say, I want to know a little bit more about David, but you can't go to David, who might you raise up? Might his family be on the short list of people that you would raise from the dead and say, tell me about your brother? Probably. And so Eliab here is helping us to understand something about David. It, as, as much as he looks good, as much as it's true that God loves him and he loves God, he's suffering with an evil heart. Second reason that I will argue this is David's response. What does David say? What have I done now? Isn't that just what younger brothers say when they're caught red-handed? What? It's nothing. Just nothing. Forget about it. And to make the point even more strong, so that, that's a bit grasping, I admit it. Like, I have, to, I have to sort of get into, is that how David would have acted in relationship with his older brother? However, David says, what have I done now three more times in the Bible? And every time he says, what have I done now? You should ask yourself, well, what have you done, David? Because the very thing that he's being accused of doing, he has done, but he denies it. And we read, what have I done now? We say, yeah, what has he done? In 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, he's speaking to Jonathan, and he is denying to Jonathan, his best and closest friend, that he did anything to give Saul any reason to want to kill him. Now, we, we swallow that hook, line, and sinker. My question is, should we? Might David have done something to pique Saul's anger and jealousy. Well, that's for a future sermon. In 1 Samuel 26, 18, he's speaking to Saul, but the witnesses are the, is the army and his own men who are in hiding from him. So Saul is chasing David, trying to kill him. David is hiding out in a cave. David comes out of the cave, and he says, O king, what have I done to you? And he, he says it right in front of his men and Saul's men, and so he's denying publicly that, that he's done anything to merit Saul's jealousy again. 
Is that true? 1 Samuel 29, 8, and this is the most clear. So those two, you know, maybe not, but you get to, to 1 Samuel 29, verse 8, and this is where you get there, and then all of a sudden the dominoes begin to fall backward from 29, 8 to 26, 18 to 20, verse 1 to 17, 29. From the end, dominoes falling because in the narrative we are told that David is two-faced with, uh, with Achish, the Philistine king. David has been looting all around the Philistine neighborhood. He's been destroying cities, but he doesn't tell the Philistine king that. The Philistine king is going out to do battle against Israel, and some of his advisors say, I'm not sure we want David on our side. David was ready to go into battle with the Philistine king. We don't know what he would have done because the Philistine king says, David, you better sit this one out. And David says, why? What have I ever done to you? Uh, how about burning all my villages, killing my, my soldiers, my women, and their children, and looting their property? But the Achish doesn't know about that, but we know about it because it's recorded a couple chapters before. So when you see that protest, you can then go backward all the way to this one. What have I done now? Maybe David knows that his motives aren't entirely pure. Third reason that I'm making this argument is the words that are used. And I don't have time to get into all of these. You could draw straight lines from each of these words to words later in the narrative. But let me make this point. There are six groups of words in, in, in this one verse, 1 Samuel 20. Uh, 1728 that are used in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. What happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12? Well, uh, uh, David has an affair with Bathsheba, violates her, then kills her husband, then is confronted by Nathan the prophet. And the vocabulary in those two chapters, it's all in this one verse. So if you're reading carefully in the Hebrew, you'd say, wow, these, all these words are in this one verse. And we know that David, through the prophet Nathan, looked at him and says, the Lord dis is displeased with the evil that you have done. You are the man. So let me just go through them quick. <clears throat> Eliab says, what have you done with these few little sheep in the wilderness? Now, why does Eliab bring that up? It's not entirely clear. It's hard to make, make sense of it unless you see that Nathan the prophet, when he confronts David about his evil heart in 2 Samuel 12, he uses a sheep parable so in both instances where we're wrestling with the evil and wickedness in David's heart the one who is confronting David is talking about sheep it's interesting ties the two together Eliab and Nathan secondly the word few what have you done with those few little sheep in 2nd Samuel 12 8 God says why have you taken this little ewe lamb? Why have you taken Bathsheba? Haven't I given you all of your master's wives? And if you had wanted more, wouldn't I have given you more? And the word few is accentuated there. If it had been too few for you, would I not have given it to you? Why did you go and take it for yourself? Which is exactly what Eliab is accusing David of. You're gonna, David of, you're going to come down here and take glory for yourself instead of waiting for the Lord to give it to you. See, we're so programmed to read this story about David and Goliath, we think that is David's only way to ascend to the kingdom, to the kingship. 
But the question is, is it? Did David have to kill Goliath for God to make him king? Well, we don't know because that's a contingent reality. But if you draw a line between few and few, the question is raised, why did you take for something for yourself instead of waiting for the Lord to give it to you? Interesting. Third, evil. I know that you have an evil heart, says Eliab. Nathan says, this evil that you have done. He says it like three times. 2 Samuel 12, 9 to 11. Fourth, I know that you have come down to see the battle. What's so wrong with coming down to see the battle? Nothing really, unless you draw a straight line over to 2 Samuel 11, verse 7. And what happened there? David was on his roof, and he saw something. He saw someone when he should have been at battle. So the word see and battle, milchamah, are, 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 so ra'ah is see and milchamah is battle. They go together in 1 Samuel 17, 28, and they also go together in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You came down to see the battle. You shouldn't be here. In 2 Samuel 11, he should have been at battle, but instead he was seeing Bathsheba. Uh, so that's four and five. Number six, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Now this is the most stunning of them all. Because verbatim, that is word for word, exactly the same. In 2 Samuel 12, 12 5, when Nathan tells David this parable about a rich man stealing another man's little ewe lamb, David's anger was kindled against the man. And then Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. So you have that, and then here we have Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Totally parallel. So was Eliab right to, for his anger to be kindled against David? Well, David is the man. What might be happening here is that the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is using the same words in Eliab's speech to David that he's also going to use to condemn David in chapters 11 and 12. And so where we read and we think, oh, David was doing so well until he made that mistake later in life. What the biblical writer might be saying is, well, he's had these heart problems from the beginning. And didn't his brother warn him to be careful? It's a lot like Cain. Sin wants to devour you, but you must have mastery over it. To summarize then, in Eliab's first cameo in the biblical narrative, we are warned not to be deceived by outward appearances. We have to look at the heart. That's his function in chapter 16. His second cameo, we are warned that in spite of his handsome exterior and his carefully cultivated personal or public persona, David, according to Eliab, is in possession of an evil heart. In 
chapter 17, what's happening is Eliab is accusing David of this. Is he right or is he wrong? Well, you have to decide that by reading the narrative. It's ambiguous. But what might be happening, and I am sure that it is, is that it's not just Eliab speaking to David. It is the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking to us, the reader. Be careful with this David guy. He's going to look really good. And I'm going to write about his life, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you, like all of David's contemporaries, might not be able to see the evil that lies within. But if you have eyes to see it, from the very beginning, maybe you'll see that in spite of all of the external appearances, David is every bit as much in need of a Savior as the rest of us. So what's the point for us? It seems like a lot of work, right? And reading biblical narrative is, because it's not like going to Paul's letters and getting a doctrine or five in one verse. You've got to read and drill down into what is happening in this history. And that will, over time, influence your theology. It will shape the way you think about God. It will shape the way you think about the gospel. And it will shape the way you think about yourself. And if we read this carefully, as I have presented it to you this morning, it necessarily changes the way we read the life of David in First and Second Samuel and First Kings. We just can't read him one-dimensionally anymore. We just can't give him the benefit of the doubt that because David says it, that's what he meant. We have to now come to a reading of David with careful scrutiny and skepticism. Wondering what's really going on underneath the surface. And if you do that, the Bible will come alive, but it will also change the way you view David. And if you view David differently than just the one-dimensional pious psalmist who loves to play the harp and was a good king and walked in the ways of God and was faithful and never did anything bad until Bathsheba and Uriah, but he was forgiven for that and so on. If you read him more as a more complex character with an evil heart, Yes, he loved God, but that's not today's sermon. Yes, he had faith, but that's not today's sermon. Today's sermon is about saying, be careful about David. Because he's been tainted with sin like the rest of us. Number two, this then really hits close to home. We're, so, we're all like David. David. We're complex, as we said last week, but we all want to cultivate a public persona, don't we? Anyone here want everyone to know the depths of the darkness that you're wrestling with in your flesh? The besetting sins that only you and God know about? The struggle that is just common to all of us. You see, what's great about this is, wow, David, who, who, who was loved by God, had these same problems. And so we can, with wisdom and very carefully, begin to walk with greater authenticity in the gaze of others. Now, it doesn't mean that we're just going to have a parade of people like, let's tell, tell me the worst thing about yourself this week. You know, 
there's wisdom. Find the right people. But we got to be careful, like David, because we too will try to cultivate a persona that may not be false, but it's not complete. This happens a lot on social media, I'm finding out, because I just joined the social media revolution. I don't know if you've heard about Facebook, but it's something. You should join it. It's really amazing. I just joined Facebook three weeks ago. And I, like everyone else, am very careful what I post. Well, some people should be more careful. <laughs> but, but the fact is, in social media is one of those places. And while you're l- looking at the social media portrait of other people, do not be fooled to think that that's the whole them. And, and that can go both ways. Uh, you know, the Christians who are posting only, only good, pious things, but also the, the, the people who profess to be witches, you know, they're not beyond the reach of God. There's, there's also an opportunity for us to touch in on a curiosity that they have that they're not expressing online about the gospel and the things of God. We can be more authentic in every sphere of our life with wisdom. And finally, and this is my last word on the topic, if we read David this way, what we find out is that the Old Testament is all about grace. David is the middle of the Old Testament, the center, the heart of the Old Testament. And he had an evil heart. So at the heart of the Old Testament is an evil heart. But God loved him. And God used him in amazing ways. So if there's grace like that available for David, you better believe there's grace available like that for us. For the son of David has come and he carried all of our sin in his body as he dragged that cross, bleeding, sweating, falling to the top of Golgotha. And when we nailed the son of David to the cross, we were nailing our evil hearts to that cross. So that according to Paul in Romans 6, verses 17 and 8, we can be made obedient from the heart. No longer slaves to sin and wickedness and evil, but made new, circumcised. We're new creatures. Our heart has been renewed, made clean, made pure, and it beats now with spiritual blood. So though we wrestle with wickedness in our flesh, we could be made obedient from the heart. So if that grace was available for an Old Testament saint like David, how much more now that the Son of David has come and purchased our pardon and carried our sin in his body on the cross, buried it in the ground, and risen to eternal life. He died for our sins and he has been raised for our life. And so we, though we can relate to David, can also go beyond that experience to walk in newness of life, no longer ravaged by an evil heart, though we wrestle with wickedness and evil sin tendencies in our flesh, but desiring the true things of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand David and your use of David 
in salvation history, that we might better know you, better know ourselves, and most importantly, have a deeper knowledge that goes far beyond facts and figures, but a deeper knowledge of the gospel that has saved us. You came to save wicked people. People with evil hearts. You passed over former sins until the time of Christ. But you have nailed our sin to the tree. Help us to walk in newness of life. The power of the Son of David. By your Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen.